This is Beyond Governance with Dr. Nimrod Dembele on 101.9 High FM. A very good evening and welcome to tonight's installment of Beyond Governance. Uh, my name is Nimrod Dembele. It is my pleasure to share this space and time with you as we tackle very complex issues that are bedeviling the, the economy. Um, I suppose everyone has a view on what needs to be done, but very few people, in my view, have insight and sufficient depth on how to do. But, uh, you know, what compounds uh, the situation, in my view, is the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic is unprecedented. You know, we have seen the so-called first world countries equally battling to flatten the curve as economies are collapsing. There are many templates out there and very few... No, 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 I was saying I'm on high FM. We can listen if you have time. 101.9. Oh, sorry. Okay, 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 Brooke. Uh, thank you. Um, as I was saying, you know, there are different, there are a number of, of templates that are resonating, that ought to resonate with the South Africa. So therefore we need to be very careful in my view, in terms of parachuting big ideas and templates that are fabricated elsewhere, uh, especially in different cultural and political contexts, uh, and that, you know, and bringing those to our shores. But nonetheless, we have an opportunity as a country to reflect very deeply in terms of how the other countries have managed the transition. For an example, how did the Chinese go about managing in the transition back to work? How did the, the states go about? How did South Korea go about? And countries such as Japan. What is, you know, for me, there are a lot of useful lessons that we need to embrace in terms of the readiness in this is. And, and, and how best to communicate these critical messages to our stakeholders, you know. For an example, we hear that rapid and extensive tests taken in South Korea have been judged successful in, limi- in limiting the spread of the outbreak without using drastic measures of quarantining the entire cities. How did they do it? Surely we need to know how did they've done it. We know what is the problem, but the question is how did they do it? And whether we are in a position to, you know, to be in the same thing as they are. In my view, we cannot activate business, uh, you know, uh, readiness or business without addressing the investor confidence. And these issues are quite important. And we know what has been lingering even before the COVID-19. As a matter of fact, we have had issues around production of government debt, issues around, uh, you know, reducing and uh, restructuring of the SOEs, uh, such as ESCOM and, and, and ESCOM and Telcom and the whole shebang of the SOEs. The reality is that these issues are still lingering despite the fact that we still have to deal with coronavirus. So um, one is very much aware of competing priorities which government needs to address. But anyway, we'll get to those this, uh, those issues at some point. I just wanted you just to reflect uh, on a high level. Um, moving forward, we had a very interesting conversation last week uh, with Bonang Mohale and Ellen Mukoki. And in my view, they did not disappoint as always. But if you don't believe me, you're welcome to go to the podcast and retrieve it and tell us your view. Our SMS line is 34519. And of course, the telegram is 0618951095. And I'm happy to take your emails uh, via uh, um, through my email account, which is nimrod at heart.co.za. <coughs> but before we get to the, the gist of tonight's show, let me take this opportunity to thank, you know, Tavo and DJ Flow for really doing his sterling work in keeping us connected with the high community. Power DJ Flow, your efforts are duly acknowledged and appreciated indeed. Getting to the main menu of our conversation tonight, I'm joined online by Ellen Mukoki and Eric Stillman. Ellen is the Chief Executive at the South African Chamber of Commerce Industry, and Eric is the CEO of London School of Business Online, and the founder of NetGrowth. On that note, let me take this opportunity to welcome, welcome gentlemen. Welcome, welcome, Eric, and welcome, um, uh, Nimrod, and good evening to your listeners as well. Thank you. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Nimrod. Hi, Tabo, and hi, everyone out there. Thank you very much, folks. Um, you know, I think the gist of the question is, how do we get the economy started? You know, how do we activate the economy uh, without really fluffing around. You know, we've heard last week 
the, the president uh, made announcement of a stimulus package, which, in, which is not really enough, but enough to get the economy uh, uh, going. But obviously there are certain practical things that, that needs to be done. But my question um, to, to, to both of you uh, is, would, you know, what are the preconditions that we as a country need to get to terms with before we can even consider our, our trajectory back online? Well, you know, if I may start, Nimrod, uh, yes. I, I would think that there are things that we ought to appreciate are the known. The, these are the known knowns. And then you've got the, the known unknowns. Um, the known unknown is that you don't know how long the pandemic is going to be. Uh, you don't know what the lockdown or a series of lockdowns are actually going to look like. Um, people are talking about the vaccine or the cure, which are not here yet, may well take 18 to 24 months. And that in itself would be very unprecedented. And there is no guarantee that you will actually get to the vaccine or cure stage in that 18 or 24 month cycle either, which therefore means there is something that you need to accept that the virus is going to set its own timeline and it's going to be here for a very long period of time. And if you then accept that, the question that needs to be answered is what are the options that we have in terms of reactivating the economy? and doing it in a way in which you do not worsen or aggravate the pandemic itself. You have to be able to then do both things. Because we saw the stats coming out of National Treasury last week that the projection of this lockdown, an unmitigated lockdown, in other words, if you do not mitigate against economic collapse, the lockdown is projected to to, to cost uh, job losses uh, of up to 7 million. And 7 million is a very huge number because 7 million effectively means that you could create the necessary, uh, uh, necessary but unfortunate environment of both social and political instability. So coming back to your question, therefore, you have to, I like to use the analogy, uh, the, the metaphor of a, of, a, of, a, of a picture and a frame. The frame being the steel frame. It has to be a, a frame made of steel and concrete. And that steel frame represents the, the enhanced, not even just the, the, the existing, but the enhanced mitigation against the pandemic. And the reason you want to do that is because you don't want to have too many iterations when you say I'm on level five, I'm going to four, I'm going to three, then you go back to five and you even think you ought to be actually going back to six or seven. You must recall that when we were at level five, the rate of infections was only in the hundreds, with deaths probably uh, below 50. Today, we're in level four. The infection rates are exceeding uh, the, the figure of 7,000, and we've got more than 130 people who have actually died. We've not actually even reached what the science is telling us would be the peak fi uh, period of the June, July, the big winter months of June, July, and August. And so if you appreciate that, what you cannot have in, is a situation where your reopening of the economy causes an aggravation of infection rates that go up. The health system is not actually going to cope. Okay, So you therefore need to say, what are these options that we have? And that's why we've actually uh, uh, propositioned the idea that um, uh, screening alone is not adequate, uh, precisely because there are many people who are COVID-19 positive, but they're asymptomatic, yet they are infectious. If you then accept that theory, it therefore means if you send people that you've simply screened and then you get in that group, a lot of the people who are actually positive but they cannot actually be tested, you're going to end up creating a lot of problems whereas the positive people go back to work, they start to infect the negative people, the negative people go home to infect their families and then you see this exponential graph of bad infections happening and people dying all over the place. So that's why testing ought to be at the center of everything that we do. We have to invest in testing more than in anything else. Yes, we need the PPEs, we need the ventilators, we need to build the beds, we need more healthcare, uh, people that are going to be uh, in the field on the front lines. But this is a testing that gives you a higher level of predictability because you now know that I'm sending someone back to work 
who is negative, and they are going to meet people at work who are also negative. We make sure that the transportation that they are using going to and fro work has been disinfected, fumigated, sanitized. The taxi driver, the e-hailing driver, and the bus driver have also tested negative. We know that the products that are coming into the shop, whether they are raw materials, whether they are input goods, are disinfected. We also know that the people in the logistics, warehousing, transportation, in the value chains have also tested negative. This is the only thing, this is the holy grail that enables you to reopen the economy in a way that is sustainable, that is permanent. You can then get rid of all these people who are in the UIFQ. The 40 billion that's been allocated will then be used for a much more better use. You will also be able to remove the relief package for the businesses that are being are able to open so that we can then restart this economy in a way that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ellen, for that anecdote. And I, I couldn't agree with you more that, uh, obviously, the issue of testing has become more paramount as as we test more and more people. We obviously have a screenshot that gives us a, a predictability in terms of what 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 sort of mitigating strategies we need to put forth. Uh, in, in friendly care because without sufficient data and without, you know, su- uh, you know, rolling out massive testing, uh, we may not be, you know, in a position to predict the extent to which, you know, all the measures are really addressing the issues. But I'll hold on to the thought. Let me just bring in Ed, um, Eric here. Eric, you know, your view in terms of the preconditions which the country needs to be thinking about or applying in a, in a, in a, in a quest to reactivate the economy. Uh, thanks, Nimrod. Um, uh, in, my view is that these processes should be tackled in parallel. In other words, there are three big things that have been revealed so far that we already know. One is that there's a virus and it's spreading and it will go up, as Alan's quite correctly says. And how do we control that? from a health point of view, from a testing point of view, from a social distancing point of view, etc. There's also an economic collapse on the go that we know about as we speak. People have lost income, lost jobs already, and one needs to address that not based on a precondition of when the health crisis is sorted out, because then we'll only be reconstructing the economy if your predictions are right, mid-next mid year, and we can't afford to do that. So we need to even activate sectors that are not high risk, even earlier in my view, even accelerate to a certain extent and identify you know, sectors, and I'll give you some examples, which come to mind, which are not high risk, and can be activated and are not currently active. And then thirdly, and I think this came out of quite a few panels, last week's panel and then Sunday night there was a very high-level panel, Jewish South African Jewish report panel of top experts, and people, you know, are saying that the social inequality and, and divisions that have been highlighted in this pandemic have, are staring out glaringly so we need to also simultaneously, in parallel, tackle inequality issues. Just to give you a simple example, which I think you and I spoke to a, a, a little earlier today, you know, the online e-commerce, which is definitely not a high-risk area, and other than in food and essential, uh, other essential products, could be and is already a, a massive employer and could be an even greater uh, employer and deliverer of services and, and is a sector that's not high risk from the health point of view. On the other hand, as Minister Patel you know, highlighted, he wants to protect small business in the townships, particularly the informal sector spouses. So to my mind, looking at these issues in parallel, you can't stop e-commerce and, and, and online trading without looking at, at the sponsor shops as well. It's not a zero-sum game. So so uh, this is my approach, not preconditions, Nimrod. Um, and, you know, that's, that's where I'm, my point for now. All right. No, 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 no thanks, um, Eric. I, I appreciate your, your view in that, obviously, you know, the, 
the complexity of the issues does not mean, you know, um, addressing one issue at a time, but obviously one is you have a comprehensive, a systemic approach to problem solving. Um, as you know, the issues are, are quite complex in that. But I want to agree with you that, um, you know, the economy has collapsed and surely we obviously need to activate the economy by looking at services or sectors of the economy which are, which have relatively less risk um, exposure. But here's a question for me as to if it's such a glaring typical example of a sector that could be actively uh, engaged why has not, you know, why has the system, why has the government not been able to, 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 to activate that particular sector? I'll tell you what, why I'm asking this question. Because in my mind, you, you obviously have to have a very strong, uh, intelligence around data. And, and I'm quite worried that we don't have a sufficient intelligence around data on which sectors and, and how to activate. I want to get, uh, you know, uh, Ellen's view on this issue. Well, you know, it's, it's quite correct that uh, everyone is learning, everyone is trying to do a number of iterations uh, without a lot of data because there is no history of something like this happening. You know, people want to talk about what happened in 1918. That's more than 100 years ago when the situation was quite different to what you see happening today. So in the final analysis, yes, there would be sectors that are easy. I mean, we made a proposal about a week or two weeks ago to say uh, the fast food sector uh, could give us such a drill. Why? Because we're able to sit down with uh, with a, with a, with a very top franchise or, uh, owners uh, and executives uh, of those uh, organizations, and we're able to sit down and get their level of commitment in terms of making sure that this thing can be done and done well. What's what you need? You need to have a template. You need to have... A demonstration. This is not a question about all comma. This is not a, a, an event where you want to solve all the problems of the country. This is an event where you're solving two problems and two problems only. You are trying to mitigate against the, the, the virus and the pandemic. You are also trying to mitigate against a potential economic collapse that we know is actually going to happen long before, long before the lockdown uh, uh, occurred. We were already facing a big evil, which was South Africa just moved into a technical recession. That in itself would have been a very big challenge in terms of how do we get around that. And then, then with the lockdown in the middle of that technical recession, even before we could even say, aha, maybe we're going to get into proper recession, not just technical recession. And whilst we're busy dealing with that, then we're hit by the ratings agencies who decided that we are not fulfilling the promise and the potential of the Republic and therefore we're going to be downgraded to junk because we've not done the things that we promised we would be able to do from a structural reform point of view. And those things dealt with the structural features of the SA economy, including governance quality, political stability capacity, wealth and flexibility of the economy and financial sector risks. We didn't do the macroeconomic performance and the prospects. Our GDP was getting in, into the minus territory with all the big problems of unemployment, poverty, and inequality that we needed to resolve. There was lack of clarity on the policy framework as it related to that specific macroeconomic performance. There was an issue, a very a big issue with inflation, interest rates, unemployment, a very, very big one. We're hitting something like 30%. So we had all these issues on the public uh, finances we're not actually on our side because the GDP to uh, uh, the debt to GDP ratio was uh, running away with us with issues of balance of payments. So I'm saying that these are the things that the ratings agencies were looking at to say you are not actually fulfilling your promise. You've promised things. You said that you're going to resolve these things. You have not actually done that. We have not actually done the structural reforms. That that one piece that relates to the SOEs, for instance, was when people say reform. We need to be able to understand, not just use words. We need to be able to understand what exactly is it that it means and what is the purpose of that structural reform. Structural reform is there precisely to ensure you create the necessary policy framework and an environment, all right, and you invest in the right things that will then give you an opportunity to grow that particular economy. So if you then know all these other things that you are facing, you then need to be very clear-minded in your approach that I need to be able to activate this economy because I would have been in trouble in any event. But we can't do the activation of the economy by killing people. We can't do that by risking 
more infections. We can't do that by risking more deaths because we know that these things cannot be done. I personally disagree with a number of people and analysts who argue that we'll just activate the economy anyway and let the government actually deal with the issue of who mitigates against the pandemic. I disagree. I think that it is the responsibility of us as business and government together, working together, to be held accountable and responsible for both. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's not a binary. No, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 Eric, you want to you wanna, uh, uh, yes. respond to Alex? Yes. Yeah, and to your question, you know, this, talking about sectors that can be activated and why haven't they been activated. So I'm talking now, I'm sticking with the example that we're all familiar with, online education and online trading. Take online education. You, you see University of Johannesburg tried to get their curriculum going online, low risk, and it was stopped. Why was it stopped? Because the majority of students are a, a, a disadvantaged and do not have access to data. Now, data is a central problem that everybody realizes There's unallocated spectrum. Everybody calls it a low-hanging fruit, and yet government has not allocated properly that unallocated spectrum. What should be happening here is that data should be free to people who are studying online. Data should, so that you can activate your higher education sector, you can activate even your basic education sector, it can be moved forward and simultaneously, Alan, addressing the problem of inequality. That's where you need to to invest. You need to look sector by sector, issue by issue, how you can get something moving without high risk and getting rid of the obstacles that stand in the way. Who are the obstacles that stand in the way? Is it Vodacom, NTN, Cell C? Is it Telcom? Is it, uh, is it government that won't allocate the spectrum because they want to give it to their friends or they want to auction it off? So right now is an opportunity. Alan might know more because he's a CEO of SACI of how you deal with that issue. Everyone agrees that it's a durable thing. I'll, I'll give you a second example related to that. If you're talking about online trading, e-commerce, a massive sector of the economy, Amazon.com already employs several thousand people in this country. It's an easy employer. It's something that can be activated quickly and without much risk. Now, how do you do that without prejudicing the small business sector? So the sponsor shops should be brought in to that space of online trading. Online traders, the Amazons, the the take-a-lots should be encouraged and, and facilitated to start procuring and start working together with, say, sponsor shops at distribution points. We need to be creative. Wasima Vuso wrote a beautiful article in Business Day today. She said, we can't get back to the old methods of solving and singing the same old songs which are not resolved. We need to come out with creative solutions and apply our minds to all these issues. Just one more example I want to just give you in, in terms of uh, – no, I'll, I'll leave it there because I'd like you to respond to that, that these are things that we can do and we need to go sector by sector to see what – I won't talk about cigarettes and alcohol because there are other agendas at play there, Okay. But certainly, the, the, you know, those are sectors that are big employers, they're a big part of the economy, they pay tax, they pay customs and excise duty, and they're not active for whatever reason. So that's, that's the practicality that I'm talking about. And I'd like you guys to pitch in and say what you think could be done and activated ASAP. All right. Even before we get to that point, uh, you know, uh, uh, Eric, I think you've made a very critical comments around, you know, what what is often referred to as the low-hanging fruit. fruit. I mean, the, the spectrum issue, I mean, there's a lot of uh, potential uh, around that particular issue. But here's the assumption, or here's the issue for me, 
the two critical issues born out of you know uh, issue of spectra. The first is about policy framework that Ellen spoke about, because you cannot activate any uh, you know uh, economic activity without clarity on policy. And secondly, it's a political will. I mean, I want I want Ellen to chip in here because firstly, I mean. What has been, from a business point of view, what has been the bottlenecks around the release of additional spectrum to ensure that, um, you know, uh, more, more and more small players are brought in? What has been the biggest challenge in, in that respect? Well, you know, I, I think that that's a very important issue uh, because we've raised ourselves as the South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry, the issue of not just the release of the spectrum, but the issue of the investment in the telecoms uh, infrastructure. Um, the, the spectrum just happens to be one piece because if you speak to the big telcos, they will always complain about the fact that, you know, the costs are so high because the, the public broadcaster is holding, uh, you know, the, the, the spectrum and that spectrum must be released. So it's one of the issues that we're putting in there. And, and, and you are quite correct, Nimrod, that the, the, the state tends to move very slowly. And sometimes that's very frustrating because uh, on the policy formulation side, the decision had all long been taken that this is something that's going to be to be done. But the government tends to be very much bureaucratic and full of red tape when they have to move from concept to transactional item. And in that regard, we need to appreciate the fact that it's us in business who need to figure a way of working with uh, government to raise that level of capability because at a structural level, as we keep complaining, you have a, a situation where the execution capability or, or capacity, including issues of culture and how we hire, retain, and performance manage people who happen to be in the public sector, is no longer adequate to deal with the challenges that South Africa is facing at this point in time. I mean, we've made a call uh, quite recently to say that even the entire civil service environment needs to change. So that the civil service, even from a compensation point of view, needs to be able to compete directly with the private sector in terms of skills. Because there are many, many pieces that sit in the public sector. (laughs) Telecoms is one of them. You know, the the SOEs is another. Uh, Finance is another. Public enterprises in general uh, is a critical component. And you need to make sure that those areas that are enablers from an infrastructure point of view are fit for purpose, and they can react in a way that is aggressive and correct. Right? So aggressive doesn't necessarily mean you make unforced errors and make unnecessary mistakes. It means you raise your level of competence and efficiency and effectiveness in driving the agenda for renewal and change that is actually going to give you the desired outcomes. So if the culture does not change, such as how we hire people co- 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 consistently, and comparatively, at the same time, with contemporaneously, sorry, at the same time as changing the way in which we appoint even things like ministers, then we're only hiding next to nothing. Because if the minister is incompetent or the minister is not adequate, the minister will not actually be able to hire the right civil servants and, uh, and, and performance manage those particular people. So we have to then agree that at a structural level, we have this huge gap because we, we have expectations that are at this particular level, but the resource allocation that we have is at a much more lower level than that particular level, and then that creates this massive problem with culture because culture is everything in organizations. You fix culture, you fix everything. And culture is not just a behavioral thing. It's just the way you do things around here, including how you hire people. If you've decided, I'm only going to hire people who are highly competent, people who are organized, people who understand complexity, people who've got an execution mentality, then your culture leads you into designing uh, HR systems and processes that actually give life uh, to that. So I'm saying on one side, you've got the state being a risk to itself in respect of not being able to move very fast in resolving problems from concept to transaction. And then you've got cultural issues that are perpetuated by the structure of the political arrangement that we have we still have to vote for a political party instead of voting for an executive president. Whether you like Donald Trump or you don't like him, the one thing that you can admire in him is that he is able to take a decision. Whether the decision is right or wrong is neither here nor there, but he is able to take an executive decision. He doesn't have to go to his political party to get um, approval or constantly look 
behind his shoulder to get the balance of forces or is labor happy, is business happy. He takes the decision because you have to be able to give the president the opportunity to hire the top executives that he can find or she can find to put into those particular positions, especially those that create this huge, massive push forward in terms of how we can turn things around. Yes, sir, if I may. You know, this is a crisis. And as people are saying, you know, never let a good crisis, a crisis go to waste. There are opportunities in a crisis. And part of the opportunities in a crisis is the ability to move things and do things that you wouldn't normally do, like have a national lockdown. Okay, where you get 58 million people who are wearing masks. I mean, we are able to do things. We got a whole bunch of Cuban doctors at inflated packages and they arrived and they all over the show. So we can do stuff. I'm going back to one or two other examples to show you that as leadership, one can do this. It's not if or but or maybe. It needs to be done. Education right now should be zero rated. You don't even have to issue spectrum. It's the policy framework. It needs to be done. Every kid in South Africa should not have to pay, pay data to access schoolwork. It's very easy. It's part of the kind of contribution that the corporate sector could make. While the crisis is ongoing right now, would create a whole new environment where data usage would shoot up and everybody would be in a new innovative age of being online and people are not disadvantaged. I'll give you another sector that that comes to mind, just in terms of what people are, are, are talking about. Take two other sectors, the retail sector. So, okay, you can get food and you can get winter clothing and you can go to the chemist at a shopping center. And I understand from people who've been to shopping centers lately that the shopping centers are already very crowded. So there's got to be mitigation measures in place those shopping centers and in each store. Now, I'm asking you, why can you not activate other sectors of a shopping center that at the moment are not generating turnover? They can't pay their rent. They can't pay their, their salaries. They they're not able to act, to operate. In other words, I'm saying to you, we need to think very carefully about not, you know, doing ourselves economic damage as we trying to, you know, I, I saw another interesting article today, I think it was also in Business Day, which said that instead of saying which sectors are allowed to operate, we should say which sectors are not allowed to operate. Which are the exceptions that actually potentially pass on a virus and, and have amount of social contact that they can't be operate? I'm, I'm saying to you, we need to do these things together. I'll give you another little example. People that I know and that you, I'm sure, all know, take the property sector. Right now, you know, the deeds office is supposed to be open and transfer properties, apparently it still hasn't opened, and lawyers are open and accountants are open, professionals, but estate agents aren't open. So people who are facilitating transactions and claiming of of trust, money held in trust to be handed over on the transfer of properties, where's the, the, the huge social contact? Is it anything more than going into a... Into a into a supermarket and and walking from shelf to shelf with a mask on, you know we need to be thinking here and creative as to what we can get going. I'm giving you more and more examples to show you that more can be done. I'm challenging well, you, Helen. But but here's the thing, uh, um, Eric. I want to go back to an issue that you and I have spoken about um, often in this in this show. Uh, but before let me before before I respond, let me give Helen a a, a, a taste. What's your take on, uh, uh, you know, some of the opportunity cr- opportunities born in crisis, which uh, Eric is pointing to? Uh, here's the thing. The thing that's very critical that we need to appreciate. We are not talking from our side, Asaki. We are not talking levels. Open this business, don't open the other business. Open this business, don't open the other business. We're talking principle. 
The principle of engagement should be the one that says we've built a steel cage or a steel frame that serves as a template or as a foundation for any business engagement. Any other person, whether you're a supermarket, whether you're a, a construction person, if we can answer that question, that as you say, people must go back to work, they've all tested negative, we've resolved the issue. You are going to work where other colleagues have also tested negative. You're using transportation that has been fumigated, disinfected, sanitized, the driver has tested negative. The environment of work where you are has also been deep cleaned and all those things have actually been done. It's not a question of, well, you know, let's have level four and level three. Let's see how many people who can actually get back to work. Because our fear, that's one of the most riskiest things that we're actually going to do, which will risk the economy in the final analysis. Because we'll stay at level four. The rate of infections will go up, as I said earlier on. You are sending people back to work who have only been screened. There are many people who don't show symptoms. They don't have a temperature, but they are COVID-19 positive. And they are asymptomatic, but they are infectious. You are now saying those people must go back to work because you believe the risk is lower. You can't believe the risk is lower. You've got to manage the risk. Because when you say, I believe the risk is lower, and you are not showing any evidence of how you know this, then you are managing an unknown. And we, we all know managing an unknown creates an unknown result. Okay? So if you manage a process in a way that is known, let's invest in the testing kits. Let's ensure that if we send people back to high FM, the producers, Nimrod, everybody else there, it's because we know that that environment has actually been sanitized in a way in which it is clean. You can have consistency. It's not about a sector. It can be a single business that goes back to work because they can articulate very clearly these risk mitigation factors in respect of how do you stop the pandemic. Why we've mentioned sectors is because we wanted to ensure that we can have a big bang, at least a big bang approach when it comes to can you do a big scale uh, re-engagement in sectors where you know you can have a higher level of economic impact because you need those taxes coming back into the fiscus. SARS is down 13 billion in five weeks in taxes that did not come in. Uh, SARS is complaining about the tobacco, alcohol people, another 1.5 billion. We cannot sustain a program of those kinds of losses. Then you've got all these hungry people running around all over the place. And we're still not not, not yet at Nimrod with the issue of the 1.8 million or 2 million undocumented immigrants that happen to be in South Africa who are not <coughs> in the UIF. You are they are not in the UIFQ and neither are they getting a social grant. And if you start having infections going up in that particular sector, it will overwhelm the entire system. We don't have a lot of beds, hospital beds. So that's the thing that business itself needs to understand. It's not just a question of complaining about we want to go back to work. Can you go back to work and guarantee you will not aggravate, you will not cause the, the, the infection rates to go up? And we argue very strongly that these two things must be done. The steel frame is the mitigation against the pandemic. The picture that goes into the frame is the reactivation of businesses into a safe environment with safe people who go to a safe place, meeting, using transportation that is safe, meeting people at work, whether they are suppliers, whether they are dealing with raw material that's been disinfected, that's also been very safe. If you do that, and we're able to do that in a drill, and we can build a template, whether it's from sector or business to business, we can build a template of success. Because we're talking 24 months, maybe even 36, maybe even more. We have to invest that time. If we can get, we've tested 250,000 people maybe in about five weeks. If we can put in the investment and find the test kits all over the world, wherever they are, it's not test kits alone that are missing. We don't have PPE, we don't have ventilators. When people make the argument, but there are not enough test kits. They should also remember, we also don't have enough PPE and ventilators and beds. But we put in the program to try and source and procure those things so that they are here. But if you can raise the level and say, from 250, I can raise that level 10 times. That's already 2.5 million people. We've got 11 million people who are actually in formal employment. Even if you're testing and finding negative people, whether it's 95% of those people and you can re-engage them back to work, 2.5 people. In, in, in a period of three, four months, uh, at least you've got an economy that's really humming and buzzing and at the same time doing so in a way that is safe. So we render the pandemic to be an irrelevance, in other ways, whilst we're busy managing that pandemic. So we have to make sure, as business, we're not suggesting in any way 
And we're telling government the same thing. Business did not say some people back to work when you don't have the safety measures. You need to make sure that it is a very safe environment to take people back there. Otherwise, this is genocide. Uh, Nim? Yes, yes, go on, go on, Eric. I, 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 I don't want to take away from your time, but I just want to agree with Ellen. I think that's a fantastic idea. I read your paper earlier that you circulated and agree with what you're saying. If we could have criteria as to when businesses and sectors can manage that risk and mitigate that risk and get back to work once they've met those conditions, that would be awesome. That's, that's an amazing thing. I wonder if you can push that uh, incredibly strongly to government and, 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 and prevail and see if Cyril, you know, what's Cyril's approach to that? What has your feedback been on that one? Well, Eric, you really, you really uh, read my mind because I wanted to um, ask um, Ellen because, I mean, as you've already pointed out, they made, they've had a, a press this, a release uh, following the, I think, following the stimulus package. Um, you know, Ellen, could you maybe just take, um, you know, us through uh, your press statement because it does speak to issues that we're trying to address and the extent to which government has either, you know, found your your response favorably or not favorably, whatever the issues are. Can you take the listeners through to your your statement? Yeah, well, first and foremost, uh, we're still waiting for government to come back to us, so we are engaging. We will continue to engage with them in that particular regard. I mean, we had a, a, a special board meeting within Busa yesterday and, uh, and took a decision that we need to re-engage the government again on dealing with exactly these issues of uh, of the mitigation uh, against the pandemic. But where we are, effectively, we were making in our statement exactly the same point, that it is an error to go back to work when you don't have the knowns, that when you've got so many unknowns that could be managed differently to make them knowns, okay? And there are good reasons, of course, and people are correct when, when, if you say, but I don't have enough test kits. That's a, a correct statement. Then what are we doing around about getting... Uh, those test kits so that we make sure that people are tested. The, the, the protocol right now is obviously screening, and from those that you're screening, those who show symptoms, is to test them, and those who test positive, you contact trace and isolate uh, both the people who test positive as well as the people that are their uh, contacts, because you need to test them as well and see whether what's happening with them. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. In, in other words, in peace times, that's okay. But where you are trying to re-engage the economy, we are asking and, 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 and basically saying we need to prioritize and divert the effort because right now the government is, 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 is screening and testing indiscriminately, uh, which is quite correct if you don't have an economic issue that you have to deal with. And so our argument is that no, redirect your effort into screening and testing largely people that you know you need to get back to work very, very, very quickly. This does not mean you leave the rest of the communities and the public who are not working out. It means you you go back to them next. But because you've got this massive problem and you are raising money, remember that the government relief measures are never going to be enough over a longer period of time of a lockdown because we're borrowing money. Even when we say there's 500 billion, 200 billion is a, is a, is a guarantee that will go to all the banks so that the banks can give loans to SMEs so that those SMEs can continue to operate during the time of this particular lockdown and pay their expenses, whatever the case might be. But we're borrowing money from the AMF, we're borrowing money from other uh, multilateral organizations who've got money. So we're borrowing money, but we don't have an answer in respect of how we're going to pay back. Okay? So it's nice to borrow the money, but you need to be borrowing money because you need to invest that money into a productive uh, cycle, not to spend the money. So we're not going to have sufficient money to fund expenditure over a period of time, whether it's social grants, whether it's uh, uh, it's uh, food parcels, whether it's the relief measures that have actually been uh, 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 announced. So our statement was largely around, we then need to redirect the thinking away from the levels that the government is announcing, level 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, into focus more on testing people. Because if you test people and you're only sending people that are negative, and you do all the other safety measures, as we said, the transportation will be uh, uh, sanitized and the workplace will be and, and all these things, you ensure that you sustain that period of re-engagement and therefore your levels don't go worse. In other words, you don't regress in terms of levels. You're not going to move from four to five. 
if you move from four to five, it would not be because you actually reopen the economy because the people you did send back into the economy, all of them did test negative. So if you are going to stop doing everything else and prioritize, this issue of testing is going to be at exactly the same level as getting beds, <clears throat> same level as getting um, PPE, same level as getting ventilators. It should not be a situation that you say, well, let me do that as a phase two when I've done phase one. They are on the same line of priority together with these other three things. So that is essentially what our statement was all about. So we've made our pitch to the Minister of Trade and Industry, uh, uh, Minister Abi Patel, and we're waiting for his response in this particular regard. And we'll continue to put and press uh, the matter forward because we know that this is, is to the advantage of the government in the final analysis because someone was saying, how are you going to fund it? We say, well, we've already put $40 billion into the UIF to pay workers, not even enough, to pay workers the little bit of money so that they don't go to work because we don't know whether they are going to work to infect or get infected themselves. This is the reason. There's no other reason why we're actually paying people the money. So let's take part of that money. Even if the tests are costing 1,000 rand a pop, 11 million formal workers, that's only a number sitting like 11 billion. It's not a lot of money considering the amount of money that is being spent on other things. So if you spend that 11 billion and you can source and find the product all over the world, and you can do this program over a period of three, four months, we will be here for the next 18 months anyway. So rather, fix this problem over the next four months or even five months, worst case scenario. At least if you fix this problem, then you have a permanent solution on the economic side. You remove all these people in the UIFQ because they are back at work, they are earning their money and they are producing, okay? You move people away from hunger, you move people away from social grants, and you are able to get money back into SARS by way of taxes, and you then have a capability to be able to pay all these billions of money, of dollars that you are borrowing from people without having a clue how you're going to pay back. So that is, in essence, is what we're communicating. Thank you very much for that input, Alan. My, my follow-up question is going to be uh, amongst the business associates, because there's always, um, you know, uh, a more oomph in a collective, who of the business community, you know, in terms of associations, uh, resonates with your value proposition and the extent to which they'll be able to support uh, how the, the, this approach will be? Well, as I said yesterday, we had our, 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 our board meeting uh, uh, within BUSA, Business Unity South Africa, and uh, South African Chamber of Commerce is the biggest affiliate within BUSA. We had a board meeting yesterday, and we adopted this position as well, that government will then be approached to try and uh, prioritize the issue of testing. It makes sense. Um, I have not spoken to the people of the BBC, uh, Black Business Council, but I'm sure they themselves would uh, would agree. Uh, the, 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 the colleagues from uh, the Small Business uh, uh, Institute, the former Africans Handels Institute, they're all part of BUSA. So BUSA is effectively the biggest of the, of the business associations. But I don't think that anyone, even within the BBC, would have a problem uh, with that, purely because it makes so much sense for everybody else. Nobody wants to have blood on their hands. We don't want our workers to go to... You don't want to have someone who was negative to go back to work. I don't want to tell the staff of Saki, who, who are probably listening right now, to go back to work, and they were negative, and they arrived at work, and two days later they've now contracted uh, uh, COVID because we didn't actually make sure that everybody that's coming back uh, uh, is actually uh, tested negative. Uh, so we need to make sure that we do the right thing that is very responsible. So we know that at least within BUSA, we took that decision yesterday that they support that particular initiative, and it will then go back to government as we have sent it already ourselves. And we there, there is no way that any other business would say we object to that. Uh, I think that those people would object to people who actually maybe may not have understood what it really means, because it's a very simple argument. If you send people that you don't know they are positive, you will then end up having to shut down completely. That's effectively the, 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 the story. There is no other story about it. Well, thank you very much for that, for that insight. I think it makes, it makes a lot of sense, um, to, to really push an agenda wherein most people are actually being tested so that those, those, in fact, not only just testing most people, but those that are going back to work, they've been tested. And, and, and the environment at the workplace is sanitized, uh, transportation system is sanitized, all those things that we know about, because that could, in a way, begin to get the economy back on track. Because, um, in, in absence of, of pushing the, 
economic will aggressively um, at the expense of social, at the expense of health. We do know that health is it's important, and we can't fault government, you know, pushing that. But I think I agree with you that we can't push health at the expense of economy, and we also have to treat them pretty much the same uh, uh, in the wavelength in order to get, uh, you know, everything back to to to, to normal. Your your take, uh, you know, Eric. Yeah, uh, I, I just want to give a little bit of a, say a good news story that I heard today. You know, Israel is is unlocking the economy, and Greece is unlocking the economy. In addition to we know uh, Korea and and China, so it can be done. And I think that you know Israel did, and I'm not sure exactly what Greece did. I was watching on CNN this morning um, that they they also managed it very cleverly, intelligently, and well, and they used risk mitigation measures. They flattened the curve, and they got past it. So it's optimism, you know. One can look at it a few months. I think Israel started the, the infection process maybe a month or three, four weeks, and they locked down three, four weeks before us. So, you know, whereas, sure, Alan might be right, people might be talking 18 months, two years, whatever, in terms of this virus lingering around, managing it correctly, we can get, as we, we as Alan and you were saying, Nimrod, we can activate this economy slowly but surely in the next couple of months. It, it, there's an end inside, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. I, I think that the main issue to Eric and Nimrod is that you don't want to have you know, in 1918, when the Spanish flu uh, was doing it, it, its rounds, whether it's 50 million people, 100 million who died, 500 million people were actually infected globally. The, 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 the first wave of infections was actually lower than the second wave. So the first wave was lower, and when people then went back to work, as though things were, the second wave was, was much, much more devastating. That's the key issue, because if you don't have a, you don't have a, a cure and you don't have a vaccine, you have an unknown. You don't actually know what's going to happen. So whilst it makes sense to reopen and go back to work, because maybe you see that the, flat, the, the curve has flattened, you don't actually know what's going to happen. Because you still, have not mitigate, you still have not mitigated against making sure that when people go back to work, they are actually going to be protected. So the you've got to do that as well. Helen, you've got to do that. that. <clears throat> but that you can only do by making sure that you are testing people. That's the only thing that you can do. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, Ellen and, uh, Ellen and Eric, thank you very much for your time. Unfortunately, thank you, thank you, Eric. There. Thank you, Nimrod. Thank you, Ellen. Thank you, Nimrod. Thank you very much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Here we go with that was, uh, Ellen Mukoki, who is the C- um, chief executive at, uh, the South African Chamber of Business. Uh, and commerce and industry, as well as uh, Ellen, um, as well as Eric Stillman, who is the CEO of London School of Business Online, really giving us their thought-provoking uh, insights around how best we can get the economy going. We have picked up that there are a number of companies or countries, so to say, that have, have sort of moved or sort of flattened the curve and have made positive strides. So it's up to us as South Africans to really, uh, you know, piggyback on those. But, you know, I think what's key, uh, what's came out for me is the fact that, you know, we can't risk the lives of people because we're going to rush, rush into, uh, rush into, you know, business or rush into work, uh, environment. It is quite important that we manage the process quite carefully. Uh, well, I suppose that's it uh, for me. Until we meet again, it has been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully you've had uh, uh, food for thought in terms of the kinds of issues that were raised by two colleagues. Until we meet again, thank you. Have a good one.